different episode in our series, Trying Something New. We're talking to women who've made a career change or picked up new skills post 40. As the retirement age rises, many of us will work into our 60s and even 70s. So are we retraining or rethinking? We want to hear about how you did it, why you did it, and was it worth it? Our guest today is Dr. Gabriel Gascoigne. Gabriel tells us she always wanted to be a doctor, but it wasn't until 2006, at the age of 46, that she began studying medicine at University College London. Graduating at 51, Gabriel has worked at Watford General, Barnet General, Chase Farm Hospital and Finchley Memorial Hospital. She is now a specialty doctor in palliative medicine at the Hospice of St. Francis in Berkhamsted, Hertfordshire, a charity providing care and support for those diagnosed with a serious illness. At 64, she is a long way from the rebellious girl who, to use Gabriel's words, went off the rails and left school at 16. Or is she? Let's find out. Gabriel, welcome to the Right Side of 40 podcast. And before we start, we have to ask you, are you feeling on the right side of 40 today? I am feeling 100% on the right side of 40, on the right side of 50, and also on the right side of 60. Brilliant. It's really nice to have you on the podcast. We've been very excited about talking to you about your career. It's not every day you get to meet somebody who has uh, gone to medical school in their late 40s. We want to know all about that. But to begin with, tell us about that rebellious 16-year-old. Did she want to be a doctor or had that idea not taken root yet? I'd actually wanted to be a doctor from when I was a very young child. I don't know why. Um, I had always said, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. Obviously, I did quite well in primary school, was doing quite well in secondary school and was on track. And then my teenage years hit. Tell us more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at at about 16, I met the man who became my husband and the father of my children and everything else academic went completely out of the window. It's a common story. What can we say? (laughs) Boys. (laughs) Yes. They're very cute. I discovered boys. (laughs) Was anyone in your family a doctor? I was just wondering where that feeling about wanting to be a doctor came from yeah it's interesting because I don't really know my mother had been a nurse but back in the day if you're a nurse once you got married and started having children you had to give up your career so I'd never known her as a nurse only you know historically and and the tale she told about it so I'm not entirely sure where that came from it is just what I always said I wanted to do. And was that what you were planning to do at 16? Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd chosen my O-levels. It was O-levels in those days, guys. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, we took O-levels as well. Don't worry. <laughs> Hooray! Um, O-levels. I'd, I'd chosen my O-levels and A-levels with that in mind and actually left school in lower six. So I had started studying for my A-levels, but didn't continue. Did you feel any sort of conflict or you know conflicting feelings about leaving your studies or was it a very clear path for you? Marriage, babies, that's what I want right now. Oh gosh, no. <laughs> it was just teenage madness. Oh really? <laughs> yes, definitely. Well, 
we feel things very strongly at that age, don't you? And uh, yeah. well, I mean, at many ages, but you tend to feel, I feel like my teenagers feel they're very right in the moment. So I can imagine how that, how that was. But so you had your first child at 18. I did. So as I said, I, I, I met um, my hu- husband. I was 16. He was 21, which sounds like a huge age gap then. Obviously, as mm. the years go by, it, it seems less of an age gap. Mm. But obviously, he was living a, a completely independent life. I wanted to, to live that kind of life too. I, it was everything I wanted was to get out of the convent, <laughs> convent grammar school um, <laughs> constraints and, uh, you know, live a, an independent, exciting life as I saw it. Did anyone try to talk you out of it? Oh, my parents probably many many times (laughs) actually after I left school I left school very suddenly I was due to um, reset my chemistry O level which was the only O level that I'd failed I I just couldn't face going back into school and failing again so I just quit and the um, deputy head mistress sister Angela her name was actually telephoned my house and spoke to me and said tried to persuade me to come back to school by saying that she was going to they were going to make me head girl oh interesting (laughs) well it is except that just consolidated my my resolve to leave wrong incentive That's interesting. Yes, I do definitely understand the constraints of a convent school, having been sent to a state school, but that was run by nuns as well. But it was the 70s and they didn't have to wear habits anymore, but they were still nuns. I just I I found it really difficult to um, conform to all the regimentation. And it's interesting. It sort of it sort of feels like you were a very different kind of learner that you that that sort of environment was not was not conducive to you know you learning what you wanted to learn or getting you where you wanted to go so you it sounds like you had to forge your own path yeah I think you you've hit on something there but in in lots of ways I think it was simply that I had reached a a stage in my life and development where I just wanted to be grown up and independent maybe partly because I I was um one of the older ones in a family of eight. So my entire life had been about other people and doing things to support and help the younger ones. I don't know, there was something about me just wanting to get into adulthood and independence and get away. Yeah, in a big family, there's a lot of pressure, isn't there? Especially for girls. I don't know how many girls there are in those eight, but the elder girls were still, maybe they still are, very much expected to deal with the younger ones. And that's a lot of pressure on a teenager, I think. A hundred percent. We were four boys and four girls, very much were expected to help and look after the younger ones. Mm -hmm. But then in short order, you had four little ones of your own. Yes. (laughs) You filled that gap pretty quickly, Gabriel. I really did. I really did. (laughs) children are lovely though (laughs) oh well that's the thing you know as soon as I um, had one child it was like oh wow this is great (laughs) I 
want to do more of this. So were you dreaming of your medical career then or were you just really in the moment dealing with motherhood? And Well, the, the medical thing never left me. It's uh, I often wished it had. Probably with my first daughter, I was that was all consuming. I was 18 years old. You know, it was it was just all consuming. But by the time she'd grown up a little bit and I was having my second daughter, I was starting to think of ways, how can I still do this? How can I still, you know, manage to make a career for myself? And I started going to evening classes, I think, to try and study for um, A-levels. But then, unfortunately, our second daughter was born with a very serious medical condition. And all of that sort of went out of the window. Yeah. So. And what did your um, husband think about your desire to have a career in medicine? On paper, supportive. <laughs> <laughs> Just about said it all then. Very, yeah. crumpled, very crumpled paper. <laughs> that was probably in the bin. It's all very well in theory, but it's quite a different thing in practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so then along comes child number three, and what happens next? That meant that thinking about medical school was kind of pushed further and further away. At what point did you start thinking about your career? So were you at home with the children for a long period of time? Obviously, you had extra caring with your second daughter. What were your 20s like? The time when... Perhaps you would have been a medical school. You were at home with your four children. What was that the focus during that time? That was definitely the focus. And um, in particular, because sadly, my marriage broke up when I was 27. Oh, dear. So uh, the youngest, our youngest child was only two years old. So I became a single parent from that day onwards. Well, that's quite a lot to take on. <laughs> I'll sum it up in one sentence, shall I? <laughs> so did that mean there was a not even an impetus, but actually a necessity to then actually do something different? Unfortunately, because my husband didn't stay in touch and didn't um, continue to be involved with the children, there was no way that I could actually do anything but stay at home and look after them. I didn't have the qualifications to get a, a good enough job to support us all uh, and pay for childcare. So I spent a lot of years at home bringing up the girls. Wow, that's tough. That's that's really tough. Mm. So what changed? When when did that sort of situation get to a point where you could change it? So obviously the girls got older and. The impetus for my first attempt at getting into medical school, my father died suddenly when I was 30. And that kind of galvanized me into thinking, I, I have to do something. I have to, I have to change something. I have to get somewhere in my life. And so I, um, I didn't know quite how I was going to go about it, but I managed to, um, go to a local comprehensive school. I persuaded them to let me in to join their sixth form. At so, wait, 30. so you, you actually sat in a room full of 16 and 17 year olds as yes. a 
Most really? of the boys. How old were you at it. this point? I was 31. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be allowed now. It would be a, well, the, the, social, the social workers would probably be involved. This was before safeguarding. Yes. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> they must have thought you were something else. They thought I was hilarious, but they treated me like um, a peer, which was really funny. They they absolutely took the mickey out of me all day long. They set up things to to explode in the physics laboratory. <laughs> yeah, once uh, in in my I I actually got a school report. I don't know why the the teachers thought it was appropriate to do me the they same. They probably love doing that. <laughs> they gave me a school report, and in it, the maths master said that I had brought um, a new dimension to the sixth form and one of the younger guys shouted out yeah she a bloody mass <laughs> there's always what there's always a comedian <laughs> but that's incredible anyway. how did you feel about it did you feel a bit weird being mixed with all these teenagers or well in a way no because my children were kind of teenagers or whatever they were at that time you know my i had young children and I, I could kind of relate to them uh, as a, not as a mother, but just as a sort of. I know what you mean, because my yeah. kids are teenagers and you get a lot of their friends coming in and out. Yeah. And you're sort of part of their, a bit part of their world, aren't you? I mean, yeah. you're not. You're just the mum who's opening yeah. the door and, you know, saying hello and goodbye to them and occasionally having a chat. But I, I, I do understand that you are surrounded by those people at that point but what did they with was your were any of your daughters at the same school as you when you were doing your own no 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 um they were at a completely different school thank heavens <laughs> yeah I, I don't think anybody would have recovered from that we're all still in therapy <laughs> That's why you had your children close together, isn't it? So you could get a nice group therapy discount because exactly. you knew that, that that was going to be coming at some it's, point. It's got to come. <laughs> I must say, the sheer mm. determination to, to, if that was the only route open to you, is kind of incredible. I think most of us would be like, nope, too embarrassing. I can't do that. Like, you, you have some pretty strong determination. Thank you. Yeah, I guess I do. Some people might call it ridiculous stubbornness or something else so so what happened next so you graduated from sixth form then what well i did get my um science a levels at that point uh and tried to get into medical school then but i didn't get the grades i was needed i, I got an offer but i didn't quite get the grades i needed and got rejected and that was it i was absolutely gutted I thought Aww. that was that was the end of the road, um, oh, right? And and it was in in many ways. So I had to had to forget about it at that so what, time. What did you do instead? So I was doing various jobs then, temping and so on and so forth. And I decided, okay, you've got to accept you're never going to be a doctor, but everybody needs to have a degree these days. So I. I had a bunch of A-levels by that point, and I just applied for a degree course at a university that was close to home, 
that I could fit in around the children to do a, a science degree that would that I just thought would help me get a better job in the future. Not mm. something that I was particularly bothered about, but it was a pragmatic decision. Did you yeah. go on the course? Yeah, I, I, I've got, I have two degrees. Um, I did a BSc with honours in uh, photographic and electronic imaging sciences. Interesting. Um, yeah, really interesting. And I actually graduated from that degree when I was 40. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. So what was that like? You know, so, you know, you've gone from a bunch of teenagers who you could relate to. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, you're a bunch children... of slightly older teenagers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so was the experience similar or quite different at university? Because you obviously you weren't living there. I guess you were commuting. Yeah, I was commuting. It was very close to home. The experience was um, I really enjoyed it. Again, it was mostly people very much younger than myself but um, they all accepted me very much into the group. And I just applied myself to my studies to, to, to get a degree. It was, it, it was literally, it wasn't a, a passion degree. It was a pragmatic degree. So what does one do with this degree? What sort of jobs are open to you? Well, <laughs> the absolute irony of it all is that I graduated in 1999, I think. It, with this degree, which was based on um, silver halide photography, etc., and digital imaging hadn't even, well, it was just coming in. And then literally after I graduated, digital exploded and my degree was pretty obsolete. Oh dear. Still a degree though, and you're Still absolutely right. Pra yeah. Pragmatism reigns. A degree is a degree and it doesn't really matter about the subject. It does help you get certain type of jobs. You do need it. So, and yeah. Actually, the fact that I got a 2-1 played a big part in me getting into medical school in the in the end. That's okay. interesting. Tell us a bit about that. Why would that be the case? Well, because, what you know, if, if you're going into um, graduate um, medicine, the minimum they require of you if you have a previous degree is is a 2-1 um, mm. and mine was a science degree with honours so you know that helped it kind of overtook my a level a levels which weren't the absolute best they were good enough but they weren't the absolute best so that's so interesting because earlier when we were chatting you said you didn't realize that all these things would lead to you know where you are now but actually, it sounds like you kind of accidentally or by design ended up on the right path that got you where you wanted to go, but just a slightly circuitous path. A very circuitous path. <laughs> <laughs> Gabriel, perhaps that's your thing. Not everybody. Yeah. Not everybody has the same path. We don't all walk the same way, do we? But... Absolutely true. Because yeah. <laughs> I definitely think about that, that, you know, that we're taught and maybe it's the nuns, who knows, but we're taught that there's like a straight line from when you, you know, join school at kindergarten, you go through school, you go, you know, you go to university, you get the job and often, you know, the, the preferences for the professions and you get that job and then you do that job. And it's a straight line from birth to death, you know, from a career perspective. But in, the reality is, and this is what I'm hearing is, you know, and that's definitely been my experience too, is that it's not so straightforward. You sort of, you know, you go in circles, you go down dead ends, you sort of backtrack. You just get 
where you want to go, but it's not a straight line. Is that your experience? Definitely not a straight line. Uh, You know, isn't the saying, um, life is what happens when you're making other plans? Oh, yeah. And and that is exactly my experience, is that, you know, I have made plans many, many times in my life, and then something has happened that takes me off in a different, slightly different direction. But ultimately, I have ended up where I wanted to be and where I always planned to be. But I would not have known that any of these stages along the way would have got me, would have got me here. Let's let's talk about some of those stages. I heard a mm. rumor you were a carpenter. <laughs> it's it's true. <laughs> it's okay. a great. You know, you know when you go to these um, away days or whatever, and they say, as an icebreaker, tell us something that we wouldn't um, mm-hmm. expect about you. It's a great one to bring in at, at those times. Um, I'm actually a qualified construction carpenter. <laughs> When did you fit this in? How? Your timeline is, I'm running out of coloured pencils now. It's insane. (laughs) So after my obsolete degree, first degree, (laughs) I had a a short, well, about a year or so working with a wonderful person, a a filmmaker. Uh, She made an independent short film and I was her sort of production coordinator on it. You'll never hear about the film but it did win a prize in a film festival in Anchorage, Alaska. <laughs> Second prize. <laughs> I'd be happy with that. Yeah, yeah. Never, well, nobody's I, heard of half the creative projects I've worked on. So, exactly. you know, a prize I, in Alaska, that sounds good to I me. Mean, I mean, I still put it on my CV. Absolutely. <laughs> anyway, I had this, this short, you know, one year job with her. And then after that, unfortunately, I found myself out of work and unable to get a job for a time. And I saw a like a a leaflet about training apprenticeships in carpentry. And I thought, okay, I'll do that. I I was desperate to do something Mm -hmm. rather than just be, you know, sitting at home trying to find a job. So I got onto this. It was like a YTS scheme, really. But once again, I was the oldest person in town. And I think, I, that's, I think that's your thing. Yeah, I think it must be my thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So late 30s by this point, right? Yeah. No, I was, yeah. No, I was 40. Oh, yeah. yeah. You yeah, graduated 40 at 40. So that you must have been in your early 40s about at this 41, point. 41, 42. Yeah. Which actually makes your children... They must have been start. I mean, your eldest must have been starting out on her career, maybe. My eldest was at university, I think, at the same time as I was doing my first degree. I mean, she's she's only 18 years younger than me. So, mm. yeah, we've, we've gone through a, a lot of things sort of at the same time, even though <laughs> I'm 18 years older than her. So, yeah, my, my children were, the, the youngest two were sort of late teens by this time you're going down this one path but your children are growing up as well aren't they they're going down their own path um yeah of education and in and looking at their careers I mean if they're anything like my children they don't seem to notice anything I do so did they notice (laughs) that what you were doing because they have their own lives don't they it's no criticism it's just that they your mum and yes exactly it's a different relationship they're not you know 
I think everything I did was was seen through the lens of yeah, but mum, I need you to do this. <laughs> yeah, but they they've always been very very supportive of me, and the carpentry. I think they were quietly proud of it. Yeah. Um, you know, hey, what I think was they that like? Was interesting. Oh, it's fabulous. One of one of my favourite times in my. Well, I love making things, so this is yeah. a great interest to me. You yeah. know, I when you say, "Oh, I thought you know I could have a go at that," that instantly raises in me because I'm a bit of a maker. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'd quite like to have a go at that as well. That's so funny. Honestly. Yeah, because for me, I would look at that brochure and I'd think, "Oh no, <laughs> that, <laughs> that so is not for me." Yeah, but tell us about it because this is like to Caroline's point. This is you know, it's we want to hear what it was like. So. I absolutely loved it. I didn't know if I would absolutely love it. I was, as I say, it was in in some ways it it was another pragmatic decision. I've got to do something. I've got to gain some kind of skill. I've got to get into some kind of work scenario. But Gabriel, um, this is not any old skill. I mean, yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of very very normal jobs. You know, sort of normal office-based jobs that you could have done with a degree not everybody picks up a leaflet about carpentry and thinks yeah I could do that only a very special interesting person does that <laughs> or someone who's a little bit odd I love the fact that you've just like oh there's a whole myriad of careers out there but no carpentry that looks interesting yeah <laughs> it was it was great i mean people think that i must be some kind of um amazing cabinet maker or something like that it was construction carpentry so it was mm. it was bashing out houses and um skirting boards and hanging doors and uh hammering on cladding and and things like that it it wasn't um it wasn't beautiful but i really well, really enjoyed it how, houses are beautiful what was it that you enjoyed i enjoyed the practicality of it I had no idea. And I think this is quite a gendered thing, actually. I, I'm realising now, because I, I was the only mature woman doing the carpentry course, to be, to be fair, because I don't think um, girls are encouraged as, as much to be practical and to make things and do things. Mm -hmm. And there is such satisfaction in knowing at the end of a working day that you have produced something tangible something that will be there something that you can look at and functional and useful i was amazed by how that made me feel uh, i drive the girls mad if we if we're ever driving in london i'll say oh i um i put that padding on <laughs> things like that and they're like oh mum for god's sake <laughs> every time <laughs> did you encourage them because you have four girls did you encourage them to really explore lots of different things rather than more traditional things expectations that you know on girls as to what they would study or pick up i did with my words and i hope i did with my actions but i'm not sure how much influence we really have sadly you know, I, I have always told them they can do, be, have whatever they want, you know, and I would support them in any way I can. But the, you know, societal pressures are huge and their own personal, you know, the life that happens to them 
has has a huge impact as well. Mm-hmm. It is it um, is interesting, isn't it? Because where do these influences come from? And when my daughter was very young and we were playing with her dolls and I think we had some kind of little play set with um sort of doctors and nurses and my um and I said to my daughter, I said, Oh you could be a doctor one day and she went, Well can girls be doctors? And Wow. really young I mean yeah. maybe five six or something and I I thought gosh how how is that even an influence you know she's seen doctors who are women you know at a surgery or hospital when we've been where where do these influences come from it's it's like you say you can't quite control it can you it's you can do the best you no, can absolutely but they are, I mean in, mm. it's interesting what you were saying about you know, girls not being encouraged to go into those sort of practical fields, because I know this is something they're trying to address with school leavers, that girls are kind of pushed towards childcare and beauty courses at the local colleges, whereas the boys are sort of construction and bricklaying and electricians and I know they're trying engineering. I know Mm. they're trying to address that and balance that out, but I still think it's a long there's a long way to go I think I agree I agree and also it, you know it, it isn't just about you know the types of jobs that people choose to go into it's about finances and my, my eldest was always determined to get a very highly paid profession she went into law because we'd had very little money when mm. they mm. were all growing up you know so there are all sorts of different parameters that influence what somebody thinks they need to do. I had a friend get, who went into you know, medicine for exactly the same reason, but they didn't Bad have a lot choice. of money growing up. Med- well, <laughs> well medicine, medicine's fallen far, we'll come, far behind. We'll come to that one. I should have, I should have done law. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my father always wanted a lawyer. My dad used to say that he wanted... What, what you really need in a family is a plumber, an electrician, <laughs> yeah. a carpenter, and all of the other professions to um, save you from the expensive bills of yeah. paying people my, to do all those jobs. My dad used to say, a lawyer or a welder is what you need in the family. <laughs> <laughs> Presume the welder was to sort the car out. <laughs> in yes, any issues. Tells us a lot about priorities. Yeah. <laughs> What's so interesting about your story is I sort of get the impression that, firstly, you don't do anything by half. You're sort of, you're all in. And the second thing is, is you didn't give up on the dream. Even though you might have put it to one side, most of us would have given up long ago. You know, so what is it about you that you didn't give up, that you just carried on? Do you know what? I, I wished I could uh, many times in my life. I really, really wished I could have let it go. But it was always there in the background. I always had a a feeling of this is what I should have done. This is what I could have done if I'd lived my life differently. It didn't lead me, but I I just had to keep just getting on with my daily life. And then this is going to sound like I've made it up. But I was on my commute home from my job as a project manager in construction, which was the job I had before I went to medical school in the end. And there was a, an evening standard left on the 
a seat next to me, which I just idly picked up and started reading. And there was an article in there about mature students going to medical school from a variety of different backgrounds. And I couldn't believe it. And I took the article, I took the paper home with me and read the article and went on to some of the websites that they mentioned about mature medics. And I had a real crisis of, of conscience or I don't know what it was. I looked at it and I thought about it and I thought, can I bear to try again? Can I actually bear to try again? And I decided I had to. I didn't tell anybody, not my daughters, my wider family. I told nobody that I was going to try again. And I applied. It involved me sitting some medical school entrance exams. And I thought I'd failed both of them. I, I hadn't told the girls. I was going off to do these exams, coming home, crying in the kitchen as I was cleaning the surfaces and whoever was at home at the time. What's the matter, Mum? Oh, it's nothing, darling. It's just blah, blah, blah. Because I oh, thought I've definitely, I've definitely failed. I've definitely did, failed. Did you have to happen. revise for them? Is Did they tell you what to prepare? or how, uh, There was how... minimal. You did have to revise for them, but there were many resources to revise for them because basically they, they don't want everyone to be able to pass them. They want to get to whether you've got the sort of underlying understanding and quality. So it wasn't like heavily math or science. I just imagined it to be like a, an exam for like GCSEs where you have to do all the math and science. It it's is, not like it that. It is like that. It is like that. But um, if you, you, you should be able to do most of that stuff if you've already got the A-levels and the, you know, the previous qualifications. It's, it, it's hard to describe what they're like, actually. Is this a route that for mature students to go to medical school? Because I presume if you were all, nowadays, all I think, I think all medical students now, for certain universities at least, have to do these entrance exams. Hmm. So, are they sort of a mix of like psychological assessments, a bit of you know knowledge-based questions, and sort of so it's sort of trying to determine your fit. Is that what they're trying yes, to find? Yeah, kind of. I mean, as I say, it was a long time ago now, so they might they might have changed them. In fact, nowadays, I think they have what's called a situational judgment test or something. I know a little bit about this uh, from my oh, brother good. working for one of the universities. They've developed a more holistic approach to re to recruiting doctors for medical school. Absolutely true. And one of the ones I did um, included a, a very short sort of essay section where you had to write about a com quite complex sort of situation and so they yes they are definitely trying to move away from the fact that I mean with coaching lots of people can get good marks at a level exactly um, it doesn't yeah. necessarily this mean that they're suited to a particular profession mm. so I think it's a good thing anyway it was a good thing for me because it got it got me into medical school <laughs> Amazing. I mean, how did you feel when you got I, accepted? I couldn't really believe it. Oh. I, I really couldn't believe it. And I, I found out just before Easter, in whichever year it was, and uh, we had a, a big Easter Sunday lunch planned uh, that one of my, my youngest daughter was hosting and we we're all getting together. And bear in mind that my children knew nothing 
about me having even gone through all this long process of applying, doing the exams, having my interviews, getting some rejections, and finally getting my offer of a place. So midway through the lunch, I decided I'd, I'd tell them about it, but I slightly botched uh, the delivery. I said, um, so girls, there's some, something I need to tell you. They all thought I was announcing I, I had a terminal illness and started crying, <laughs> saying, what is oh, it? No. What is it? Oh, God, mum, what is it? I said, I finally got into <laughs> medical school. <laughs> and they basically told me to, oh, bugger off. That's the worst way to announce good news ever. <laughs> I think there ought to be a little a little crib sheet for anybody announcing, any parent announcing good news to their uh, family. Like, don't start with, there's something I've got to tell you all in a sober voice. Yes, because there's only a few <laughs> options of what that could be. Yeah. And it might be why explain why I've been crying and <laughs> acting strangely. Oh Goodness, <laughs> did you feel oh, did you feel a great sense of relief once it was sort of out in the open? I did, I did. They they were so proud of me and and amazed and and delighted for me once they got over the uh, the worry that it was something really terrible that had happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you can stop talking about cladding. <laughs> yes <laughs> but now I just bore them with other stuff medical stuff yeah. <laughs> but, but after they got over the you know excitement that it was something good and you were going to medical school was it a bit like oh mum's doing another thing or did they did they understand that this was the thing that you always wanted to do they totally understood it was the the, the thing I'd always wanted to do but I'd, I'd stopped talking about it for years and years and years you know yeah. they, they just knew that as a historical thing so it was it was quite a thing for them to adjust to actually I think did they try and talk you out of it, it. no I, I sometimes wish they had <laughs> <laughs> on nights on call yeah, yeah. Did, did anyone try to talk you out of it saying you're too old or no but lots of people when I was a medical student lots of older um, more experienced doctors would say to me what the heck are you doing why you know, we didn't know any better. <laughs> we came into it at 18. Why would you decide to, to do it at this stage? And how did you answer? I just said it's what I always wanted to do. And I had I had to see. I had to see what it was like. I had to do it mm. when I got the chance. I suppose from their perspective at 46, if they were the same age as you, had been qualified for probably 20 years. And mm. It's not an easy job. I mean, I can, under, I can understand that. And I think also, I mean, for anybody, you know, wanting to do medicine, even as a young person, I mean, it's not something, what is it, a five-year degree and then a two-year foundation? And then that's it, you go on, yeah. and then you go on, so that's seven years, and then you go on to, you know, then you look at your specialties. I mean, I think for anybody at any age, it's, it's a big commitment. And I must admit, you know, when I heard that, that you had gone to medical school at 46, I mean, my first thought was, goodness me, you know, that's, that is a big commitment at that age. And how long are you going to be a doctor? And is it worth it? And, you know, just so many questions. I think, all I of think those for, things. yeah, all of those things. And also, oh. and the stamina that you need to keep going. But tell us about it. What was it like? You arrived on day one, I mean, I've watched a lot of Grey's Anatomy. I mean, 19 seasons. <laughs> so essentially, I'm pretty much a qualified doctor myself because I've watched a yeah, lot of, of several are. times. Of course I am. Um, 
push 10 of epi is all I can say. <laughs> so, and I know what it's like when those new graduates arrive in the, um, in the hospital. In the TV hospital. In the TV <laughs> hospital, in the made up world in America, not here right now. Okay, I'll move on. But, <laughs> but tell us, Gabriel, what was it like for you? It was surreal, I would say, certainly on day one. I mean, I was very excited, I was very nervous, apprehensive, all of those things. And at, at UCL, the um, main lecture theatre is pretty huge. You know, the cohort is 400 plus, I think, in, in my year. I obviously got there early because I was a Kino and uh, <laughs> went in, went in and sat in um, lecture theatre one, looking at the stage as people started coming in, people who looked like they should, they were perhaps playing truant from school rather than um, ready to be at university. And I must admit, I, I just thought, God, what have I done? How am I going to do this? <laughs> for, for their, from their perspective, they all sort of filed in. A lot of them kind of took a glance at me and I'm sure they were thinking, who's brought their granny? <laughs> for their first day at uni <laughs> were you the only one were you the only mature student though no and there were a group of us I, I mean we weren't a huge group but there there were a group of graduate mature students there was one other chap who was a couple of years younger than me so okay. I at least had one buddy who was mm. almost my age and the others the mature ones were more in their sort of late 20s to to early 30s but they're a lovely bunch and mm. I've got on with everybody. How did they respond to you once they worked out that you actually belonged in the class? Did they ignore you? Did they engage with you? What happened? Funnily, funnily enough, my, my daughter said, said, said it was like I was a bit of a Z-list celebrity in some ways. Everybody <laughs> knew who I was. <laughs> you know, there was no question of, there were so many people in the cohort that, that obviously people just get into their smaller groups of, of friends and what have you. It's mm. impossible to know everybody, but everybody knew me. <laughs> but yeah, they, they were wonderful. They, they accepted me. Um, I was probably a bit of a sort of mentorish type figure for them a lot in of the time. In what way? Just because I'm a mum type figure, people would gravitate towards me if they had things they wanted to talk about or were worrying about. Yeah, quite a bit of that happened, mm. which I I liked in some I was ways. Go, I was going to ask you, actually, whether you like that or not. Or, yeah. you know, being this is not the first time you've been in that role. I mean, several times you've talked about going to sixth form and doing your first degree and now at medical school, you've said they accepted me. In the sort of university setting, the actual preclinical time when it was lectures and things like that it's fine I was just another person in in the you know lecture theatre and what have you mm. it, it became much more tricky on clinical placements simply because patients and other members of staff would automatically assume I was a senior member of the team they wouldn't think I was a medical student and they'd be very confused when I said I was a student and again when I qualified and was a very junior FY1, I think it was difficult because more was expected of me than of the FY1s that looked 
18 or 20 or 23 or mm. whatever they were. Did they think couldn't... you could cope with things more or they, they just assumed no, that you knew just, more? I, I just think they couldn't get their heads around the fact that I, I still only had the knowledge level and the skills level of these other very young people. They thought I must have more knowledge and better skills. So that was quite hard because then I felt sometimes that I was being found wanting, even though I was actually performing at the same level as the as the people who just happened to be younger than me and obviously looked younger than me. It's a fascinating window into how ageism works the other way in terms of the expectation on you. Because I was conceiving this, that there was only advantages, but actually this is a this is a big disadvantage that- Oh, that... it's a huge dis disadvantage. And the other side of the, uh, the other thing that was really difficult was the hierarchical nature of medicine. You know, I'd come from being a, a project manager for construction projects where I was, you know, respected for my skills and knowledge and expertise at a at a certain senior level and mm. now i was literally at the bottom of the the heap mm. how, how did you and cope with that it was it was really it was tough i just had to suck it up really i did sometimes in, in my head i was thinking i'm going to take you out on a building site and see how you <laughs> how you get on <laughs> and not explain where the edge of the scaffolding is Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I think this is one of the most challenging things for people who change careers later in life. And I've certainly come across this in other conversations with women that we've met and I've experienced it myself. You you take a career shift and that involves taking, you know, a step sideways or down and you find yourself at a different level to where you've been yeah. before but you haven't got that specialist knowledge, which enables you to be at the level you were before, but you've still got masses of work experience, you know, life experience. And I think in, as you say, in hierarchical institutions, that's harder. I think people also find it in other institutions as well. It is, it is a difficult one. It is a difficult one. I must say, I think, I, I like to think, and I hope, I think my patients have benefited from all of the other stuff mm. that I've done. I believe that I have brought a lot to my practice. Not all of it was from medical school. Mm -hmm. A lot of it was from life experience and previous work experience. So, it, you know, it hasn't been wasted, but during the years of my training, it hasn't often been acknowledged by the system, if you like. But it's interesting, like you're talking about all these different jobs where you, I think, it sounds like, you know, this is what you bring to your practices. You've dealt with people from all walks of life and Absolutely. different ages. And so talk to us a little bit about like how you sort of exercise that experience in your practice. I think what, what it's helped me to do, because I've experienced all of these situations, situations where I've been very uncomfortable for instance you know because I've been demoted if you like my my, my lots of my experience, life experience has been ignored or, or not acknowledged or denigrated in some way I feel that I have a very open approach to all of my patients I don't make assumptions I, I can relate to all sorts of different people in 
all sorts of ways because I have been relating to all sorts of different people in all sorts of different ways my entire life. Whereas some people, and, and it doesn't mean that they're not good doctors or good uh, whatever they do, but some people have less exposure in their in their mm. journey mm. to different walks of life, to different types of situations. You know, I, I just think, although it, it has all, it has been hard at many times throughout this journey. You know, I, I've been a single parent living in relative poverty for many years. Many, many, many of my peers have not experienced anything like that. But many of our patients have experienced that. Do you think it makes mm. you a better doctor to have taken this route, this journey, than the Gabriel who might have got her A-levels and gone straight to medical school at 18, 19? Probably. Probably that's so. I 100% think I would have been a, a different and not as holistic and encompassing a doctor if I'd gone straight from grammar school to medical school to um, working as a doctor. And also you, you specialise in palliative care now, don't you? So I yeah. would imagine you need quite a lot of life experience or reference points to be able to deal with that. Is that the case? I really do think it's a it's a plus in in my specialty to have life experience. I think it's a plus in both ways. I think it's a plus in terms of what one can bring because one has been through things, you know, the experience one has had, but also in terms of resilience and being able to cope with the challenges of this line of work. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about like what palliative care is from a medical point of view and, and how did you get into this? Like what was your journey to end up in this specialism? So again, I took a little bit of a circuitous <laughs> route. <laughs> Quel surprise. Um, so... it's, it's not a circuitous route. It's your route. That's how we're defining it now. Yeah, my way. <laughs> Gabriel's way. It's yeah, Gabriel. absolutely. I think this episode... That's what I'm going to call it, Gabriel's way. <laughs> so um, obviously one has to do the foundation years, uh, which I did. My last rotation in foundation was actually paediatrics, which I really enjoyed. And at that point, I thought I might want to become a paediatrician. So I didn't go straight into further training. I did almost a locum job, if you like. I carried on in paediatrics for a further sort of 18 months. Really loved it, but overall had a couple of very challenging and tragic experiences, as, as one is, is likely to do in any part of medicine, and felt that it was too stressful of a specialism for me to continue with. So then I had to go back Back down, back down the ladder. <laughs> it's snakes Just and trying ladders. Another route. <laughs> you need to call this podcast Snakes and Ladders. <laughs> it's a good title. <laughs> so I then had to reapply to go back into training um, as a core medical trainee. And that's a two-year program. Well, it's three years now, but it's a it was then it was a two-year program of rotating around all of the medical specialties so cardiology respiratory everything so I went back to do that 
and was progressing fine in my training. And then we had a family tragedy. Um, our youngest brother died suddenly and I got off track a little bit. I got behind with my portfolio work. You, you have a lot of backup work that you have to do while you're training. Mm. Uh, and so I had to do, I, I, and I went into some counselling to help me with that. So I ended up doing three years of core medical training instead of two. And whilst I was in my final year of doing it, I got very much involved with the palliative care team at the hospital and developed my interest in palliative medicine. And a friend of mine had started working at the Hospice of St Francis and let me know that there was a, a job coming up there. And I applied for it and got it. Fantastic. Of course you did. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been there for nearly five years now. Five oh, years in August. I was just going to say, I suppose in palliative care, it's as much about the family as the patient. It really is, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if that's helpful with your experience, what you bring to it. Do you enjoy that aspect of it? I mean, it's hard to say enjoy considering the circumstances but you're not just treating the, the person who's ill you're you're supporting the whole family with the diagnosis and treatment absolutely and and interestingly i see parallels with that with um, my desire and my enjoyment of, of pediatrics as well and mm. neonatology because in pediatrics and, and with neonates you're actually looking after the whole family not just the um the patient and palliative medicine is, is very much the same in that respect. In palliative medicine, it is very intense. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of psychological um, strain, perhaps. But what makes it doable and, yes, enjoyable, because I do love my job, is the difference it makes. And mm. you can see the difference it makes. And you can, you can feel the effect and the help that you are giving to people. And not all of medicine feels like that. From my perspective, I think about a lot. I think about how culturally, definitely in the West and definitely Anglo-Saxons, we're not really comfortable with death and we're not really familiar with it anymore. And I think there's something really kind of interesting about what you're talking about, which is helping you know helping the patient helping the family ease them towards the inevitable where most of the time we're spending our time resisting it which is an interesting thought from a medical point of view so you know the whole idea is keep us alive as long as possible but you know you're doing something which is different i know exactly what you mean and actually it's one of the huge challenges with palliative medicine at the moment is that trying to get it out there, trying to get the, the discussions out there. The amazing, I don't know if you've heard of um, Dr. Catherine Mannix. I thoroughly recommend people read her book or listen to her podcasts or um, any of her videos. She's a retired now, I think, palliative care consultant who has done huge amounts of work to demystify natural dying, to help people to understand the process to understand you know the the things that are likely to happen when somebody is coming to the end of their lives her book is called with the end in mind 
and it's just phenomenal. So one of our one of the things that in palliative medicine as a whole we're trying to get out there is an acknowledgement of death being a part of life, an mm -hmm. inevitable part of life. And therefore, people need to be having the conversations. We need to demystify it. We need to bring it into common parlance, the way that birth is, you know, talked about freely. Is that part of your job as the, as the doctor? Do you feel that that's a really important piece of what you're doing? Definitely, definitely. Particularly now with, with modern medicine, you know, years ago, life expectancy a hundred plus years ago was your late 30s early 40s maybe things have changed completely in in the decades since then and we haven't culturally caught up with that and now with all the advances in medicine people expect to live forever they cannot they find it hard to tolerate that their loved one is going to die and it's going to happen soon because they think there must always be something more that could be done and so we have we do have a, a, a big job to do to um, get those conversations out there to get that education out there so that people become more comfortable with the inevitability of death. Is that a big part of your job the sort of pastoral side as much as the medical side? Huge, huge. A large part of our time is spent talking to the patients talking to the families you know that's that's almost the biggest part of our job um the medication side of it is the mechanics of the job but this is the the heart of the job do you see yourself doing this for the rest of your career oh definitely yeah yeah and and how long could you go on forever doing this or i, I always I, I always joke at work that they'll come in one day and find me dead in the corner of the, of the, of the doctor's <laughs> office. Wouldn't that oh, be God, what, we, what we all want? We all want a yeah, good death, absolutely. don't we? I mean, die absolutely. doing something you love. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 somebody will say, God, Gabby's quiet today. Yes, oh, <laughs> there she is. <laughs> when we feel a sense of surprise at somebody going to school, um, going to medical school, sorry, it's so late in life. I think it, I, I definitely think part of that is how, but how you're going to train for all that time, but how long are you actually going to have a career? Whereas for you, since graduating in your early 50s, I mean, I know you were still in your foundation years, but I mean, you're already at sort of 13 years in your career and as you said, it could go on. I mean, do you feel like you've had a good run of it? Do you feel like it was worth it? It was definitely worth it. Definitely worth it. And, you know, I haven't had any had to have any career breaks to have my children. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the thing. And it's funny because when we first spoke, you said something that really resonated with me, which was I'm quoting you very roughly from our first conversation. But it was something like oh. women. You said women's experience of working life is very different to men's. And I was wondering what you meant by that and but it did it did start me thinking in terms of I think about you starting your family relatively young and being becoming a doctor much later and whether we're all just stuck into this experience which is perhaps has been based previously on a more male experience of going out to work getting a career supporting the family whereas actually for women it's just not so straightforward you either go into a career and take career breaks for children 
or perhaps you go into things later on what what do you think yeah i mean many many of the uh, women doctors that i work with have needed to work you know less than full time for many many years because of children because of mm. childcare but their husbands are working full time throughout that mm. period and i think it's something that's not really acknowledged in terms of why women do not progress as quickly as men why women do not you know take so much longer to reach the same levels mm. i mean there are lots of very very successful female consultants who i know but they have had to work extremely hard to forge their careers mm. harder than their male counterparts why harder ha harder because they've had to combine it with having time off to have children and yeah looking after the children yeah i think i think you're absolutely right on the, the that part-time element it takes longer and it's more yeah. difficult and i still think that there is a stigma around people who work part-time even though they're working to a certain level that somehow it's not they're not they're not as serious about their career yeah. whereas all they're doing is trying to balance work and home i i mean i i once had um consultant a very old school consultant who said to me it's um all you women coming into medicine that have brought the profession down it's not that as valued now because there's more women in it that is shocking yeah it's it shocking to me <laughs> yeah and it's shocking not because it was said to you but that it was said to you within the last 13 years because yeah. you, you've yeah. only qualified. I, that to me sounds like an attitude from like 1958. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I think that attitude continues. Well, I'd just like to refer that gentleman to the uh, every time I ring the GP and ask, which is my preference to have a female doctor. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> women bring something else to the role. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of which, what advice would you give, Gabriel, to a woman who did want to do her career this way around and start uh, her medical training sort of early 40s or just after 40? What would you recommend is a, is a good way to think about it and to go about it? I would say do think really, really carefully about it because it's not an easy road and it's not an easy profession you, you've got to really you've got to really know that it's what you have to do if you like that you won't be satisfied if you do anything else which because, you weren't let's face it yeah yeah you exactly. had to, I mean do you feel better about that, the uh, fact that you finally did the thing that you want I do but I, mm. I'm not ever going to sugarcoat it and say that it has been easy and yeah. that it's been um, a walk in the park. You know, shortly after I um, qualified, because all of my friends and family who knew that I'd always, always wanted to be a doctor would say, oh, isn't it wonderful? Are you absolutely living the dream? Mm -hmm. And I'd have come off, you know, in my seventh night shift and I'd be thinking, that's quite hellish, actually. <laughs> it's a dream just not the same one <laughs> it's not the dream i had i'd watched too much television <laughs> i tell That's you stay what... away from that gray's anatomy exactly 
Because that's a good point is that, you know, my perception of medicine is that it is grueling and it's grueling at any age. Have you found it to be like extra grueling? You know, the, the, the interesting thing about that is I think I've, I've found that I've, I'm actually more um, resilient in some ways than some of the younger people. And I, I put that down to the fact that, you know, I had four children and I brought them up myself and I'd had millions of sleepless nights and so on and so forth. Whereas the average 18 year old or, you know, 23 year old has, has not had those experiences. Mm. So I didn't find that aspect of it as grueling as I found the hierarchy and the, the brutality of the hours, not from a physical resilience point of view, but from an emotional and psychological point of view. Mm. The, the relentlessness of, of worrying about your patients and what's coming next and what should I be doing? And yeah, that's the hard part. Mm. That's the hard part that nobody can prepare you for, I don't think. Do you get support with that? Or do you think that's something that's lacking? I don't think you get as much support as is needed at all. What um, support would you like to have? To, you know, what, what would you like to see? I think it needs to be a much more nurturing and mentoring environment. But the constraints of the job, you know, the, the workload and so on precludes that mm -hmm. at the moment, I would say. You, you, mm -hmm. you could get lucky. I've, I've had some, you know, rotations where I've had really wonderful senior staff who are mentoring and supportive and helpful. But an awful lot of the time, the service provision requirements mean that that is not at the forefront. Yeah. I've got one question yeah. I, I do yeah, want right. to ask, is that you qualified just a few years before the COVID pandemic. There cannot have been a harder time to work in a hospital. Yeah, I was already at the hospice when the pandemic hit. Okay. Um, but it did affect us very badly as well. In fact, we're still, I mean, we're still wearing masks and, and so on. And we looked after several patients who died from COVID. It was horrific, actually. Mm. Horrific in what way? The experiences of relatives, the experiences of patients, the um, pressures on the hospital. Because obviously we, we work closely with the hospital because they refer patients to us. And so colleagues that I had worked with died of COVID. And particularly for um, end of life care, what was difficult was the constraints that we had to put in place on visitors and, you know, how people could, could interact with their loved ones, how many people could come to the hospice. It was, it was so alien to our usual practice. You know, we, we're normally open to everybody. They can come and visit any time. People stay over. All sorts of things had to change and be restricted during the pandemic. And it was just so tough. And, and we were looking after people in, in full PPE, you know, whereas normally we're mm -hmm. able to hug our patients and their relatives. And it, it, was, it was completely, completely different. Mm. and really really tough do you think I'm, it's I'm getting back up. to where it was do you think you're you know, oh I'm hugging away 
Good. Good. More hugging. That's what we I'm need. I'm hugging away. Yes. More hugging is what the world needs for I, sure. I'm a, I'm a hugger. People <laughs> like hugs retreat from me. I'm going to ask one more question. Oh, gosh. Okay. So, have any of your children thought about be becoming a doctor? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> Categorically, no. They thought I was mad and they still think I'm mad. <laughs> Who knows, though, Gabriel? I mean, they're not all over 40 yet. It could. Well, there's only one who's under 40 now. Oh, okay. Yep. Well, number three turned 40 in February. <laughs> the youngest is 39. Interestingly, my eldest will be 46 this November. Wow. So one thing um, I do say to anybody I encounter, if they're sort of just quietly saying, oh, do you know what? I'd really like to do X, Y and Z in my life. I ask them how old they are. And I say, well, you've got another, if they say that, you know, 20 I say you've got another 26 years to decide yeah that's <laughs> very I love comforting that. it is comforting I love yeah. that and that's one of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast there is time you can yeah. pick up those dreams you can change your path you can take the circuitous Gabriel's way <laughs> anyway so thank you so much for coming on the podcast today we've just loved hearing your story it's absolutely fascinating thank you very much oh, thank, you. thank you it's been absolutely wonderful i've enjoyed every minute of it thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode if you did let us know about it we also want to hear what you've been up to since turning 40 Get in touch on our website, rightsideof40pod.com. Follow us on Twitter at RightSide40, Instagram at RightSideOf40Pod, and Facebook at the Right Side of 40 Podcast. All content is arranged by Eve and Caroline. And a big thank you to Terry and V. Neal for writing, performing, and mixing the original music.